Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 34 of the Argument Clinic podcast. Uh, as some of you may notice, it's not usually I that is doing the introduction because Martin has abdicated his responsibility as fearless leader of this podcast by doing adult things. I think he's currently on a bus to the Sunbite tournament, um, a tournament that I've never attended and I probably never will. It does not sound very fun. Um, but in his place, we have secured ourselves a guest who arguably might be better than Martin Sigalow himself. Uh, Martin might strongly disagree or he might agree. I don't really know. But our guest is uh, Jacob Nails, uh, who we had pr on previously at the Woodward Tournament episode, an episode that I don't think contained that much of substance, but was at least fun to record on our end. Whether or not it was fun to listen to, I, I, I don't know. But uh, Jacob, how are you doing? I'm doing as well, Lawrence. All right. Well, that's good. Um, surprisingly enough, Martin and I were actually at the same location. We were both at the Lake Highland Prep Round Robin uh, just last week, and we meant to record an episode live there, but I was dying of, I assume, the plague, because that can really only describe how I was feeling. And so every time I attempted to record, I started coughing <coughs> like that um, about 10 seconds in. So Martin and I instead elected to just play lots of Super Smash Brothers Ultimate instead of recording this episode, and now... Uh, I guess we'll finally get to it. So uh, this is a long time coming. Uh, this The topic's been out for a while. Uh, tournaments have been happening, but you know, holidays, adult stuff, at least we're finally getting around to it. And so in case you haven't figured it out, this is a topic analysis episode over the January, February Lincoln Douglas debate topic. And as always, we're going to follow the same structure. So we'll start by covering issues surrounding the topic and what it means to affirm or negate. Um, and then, of course, we'll discuss some common affirmative and negative arguments. Um, and there's a special treat here because Jacob Nails is actually one of the ones or the only one that cut the evidence for the victory briefs uh, briefs for the Janfeb topic. So he knows a lot more about the topic than I do, which is good. I don't actually know that much about this topic, mostly because the one tournament I went to on it so far, I mostly spent it trying not to die from my illness and not actually paying attention to the arguments that were being read. Very quickly, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Victory Briefs, for providing the hosting and equipment. Victory Briefs is a summer debate institute that also sells high-quality brief products like the one referenced in this episode. You can check them out and learn more about them at victorybriefs.com. So, uh, when we come back, we will jump right into it. Okay, so let's start by uh, examining what this topic is. Um, so what's going to happen is I'm just going to sort of read the resolution, and then we're going to go through and go through all the key components and the key terms of it. Um, and then we'll answer some, I think, pressing questions that might exist over like what it means to affirm or negate this topic and what this topic does and does not mean. So for those of you who are unaware, the topic is resolved. The United States ought not provide military aid to authoritarian regimes. And there are, of course, two major terms that we'll focus on, but we'll just go through it uh, one at a time. Let's let's start with the obvious one. So the United States, um, this means just the United States. I assume there's nothing particularly wonky that debaters should be aware of. Anything that you would add to that part of the definition? No, it seems pretty straightforward to me. The United States here refers to the federal government in Washington, D.C. That's generally the definition you'll find uh, in most contexts where the topic says United States. And that's even more true on this topic, just because, as we'll discuss when we get to other terms, issues like military aid are exclusively within the purview of the federal government. It's not like individual states or local governments or anything could affect United States military aid policy. 
And so in addition to that being the most common definition, it's also the only one that will make sense just because any other definition of who counts as the United States wouldn't actually be the relevant actors with control over United States military aid. Yeah, I agree. Do you think there's any sort of value in discussing perhaps jurisdiction over who gets control of the aid? So for example, the differences between the Department of Defense, the State Department, et cetera, or is that just like a sort of interesting FYI, but not really relevant to the topic? Um, so there is some discussion in the literature about different types of aid. Uh, for example, like USAID is a, a form of you know, democracy assistance that we have. And there's uh, forms of like, you know, counterterror aid, uh, counterproliferation aid, counter-narcotics, etc. I think what you'll find is that some of the better definitions of military aid are the ones that limit it to exclusively military purposes. So helping another uh, foreign nation's military in some way by like training or providing weapons to them. And those sorts of definitions are going to limit out a lot of the other sorts of aid done by civilian departments, like funding for legal institutions to challenge terrorism or funding for alternative crops to challenge um, narcotics. Those are like within the broader realm of security aid and so, uh, some topic literature will group it together with military aid. But in terms of military aid, uh, emphasis on military, a lot of those departments outside of the DOD are not going to count because they're the non-military aspect of the topic. It's other aspects, the civilian aspects of the federal government providing different forms of aid. All right. Agreed with that. Um, all right. Next term is uh, sort of just ought not provide. Um, so I, I obviously think ought implies something to do with sort of moral obligations and what the government is morally obligated to do. Um, is there, I think, anything interesting about the negative phrasing here? So like ought not provide, do you think there's anything different from any other LDU debate topic that we might have that has the phrase ought? Yeah, uh, this is, I think, a, a pretty important thing and a number of differences come to mind. First, and just most basically, the last time I recall a topic being worded like this, there may be one I'm, um, oh, there's Jan Feb 2017, I guess. But the, the last one that's closest to this was Jan Feb of 2010, which was, the uh, economic sanctions ought not be used to achieve foreign policy objectives, where the AF was saying sanctions are bad, we shouldn't use them, and the NEG was saying we should use them. And I recall on that topic and uh, the uh, previous topics that also had ought not, like states ought not possess nuclear weapons, a lot of debaters, especially like the earlier levels, like Navas and GV, were getting confused at times between which side was affirmative and which side was negative, because you're kind of used to in debate, if you've debated a few topics, the act defending the thing you're talking about and then the neg opposing it. But in this case, the action being described, military aid, is actually the negatives ground, and it's the app saying, don't do that thing. And so that's going to change a lot of stuff. So like if you're comparing how military aid potentially trades off with another particular form of you know, United States uh, military policy or non-military policy, it's actually the affirmative who's arguing there's some inherent trade-off and the negative arguing that there's not a trade-off. So there's a lot of specific issues where you might be used to, say, on the affirmative saying, these two things can be combined, and on the negative uh, being used to saying the opposite, and that's going to be flipped around. And so if memory serves, debaters often kind of got themselves muddled up and forgot which side was that and which side was negative a number of times at lower levels, just because the ought not part of the resolution flipped it around. Uh, a second thing worth noting is that ought not also suggests that it's not the AF here even who's discussing implementing a, a United States policy. The policies are the ones that already are in place. The United States does provide military aid in a number of forms. And the AF is saying those policies are bad, don't do them. And so any debates about like is you know political action good or bad also I think arguably get flipped around here because it's the affirmative here who's saying political action is bad and the negative per the topic is the one defending political action. Um, 
there's probably a few other things worth noting, but those are the two that immediately come to mind regarding ought not. Sure. Um, <laughs> and both of those, I think, make a lot of sense. Do you think there's a reason why, you know, apart from just like laziness, that the topic committee chose to use the term ought not provide as opposed to something like ought not or ought eliminate? Uh, is there a reason for the, is there a difference between like the not provide versus eliminate? Is it a relevant difference? You know, what are your thoughts about that? I'm not sure if this is true, but the thing that comes to mind is ought eliminate might suggest that we are getting rid of whatever current military we provide, whereas ought not provide seems like a more general prescription not to do this thing. And so it would extend to hypothetical future instances. And so the app is just saying, this is the sort of thing the U.S. doesn't in general do. Whereas if the topic were to be worded, the U.S. ought to eliminate, it seems to be more along the lines of the current aid we're providing is bad, but maybe hypothetically there's some form of aid that could be good in the future. Yeah, I, uh, that was actually exactly my thought, which is like, I think it's interesting they chose to use ought not provide because it, it's a pretty blanket prescription that is about, you know, basically in the far future, like we just even then probably cannot provide military aid to any authoritarian regimes, even including those we are not currently providing military aid to. Um, I'm interested to see if this affects the, the sort of strategy or argumentation choices on debaters. Uh, my guess is it will not. But uh, I mean, what do you think? One article I recall being more popular back in the day, again on the sanctions topic, which I think is the closest parallel in my mind to this topic that we've had, uh, as well as a few other topics around there, is one argument that came up a lot from the NEG was something that was usually referred to as the tool in the toolbox argument, which is, and again, this works well on ought not topics, so this is actually a third thing that's relevant to the ought not portion, which is the, the app is saying you can't do this, but the opposite of you can't do that is not you must do that. It's you can do that. And so the negative ground here, strictly speaking, is not to say necessarily military aid is good and we should use it, but simply to say military aid is an acceptable, permissible option for the United States to use, and it's one that's available to us. And so much like with the sanctions topic, um, the negative might argue something like, hey, you know, maybe sanctions don't necessarily always work, but there's some times where they are effective, and so we should reserve the option to sometimes use sanctions in those situations that demand it. Likewise, on this topic, the negative could say, hey, maybe military aid fails on a number of instances, and maybe we should be providing it to a majority of the world's governments, but we should retain the option if the situation arises, maybe, for example, if it's necessary for counterterrorism, something like that, to provide military aid in those specific circumstances, because military aid is simply one tool amongst many, and it's not necessarily it's the sort of thing we just like, we just give it to authoritarian regimes because they're authoritarian regimes. It's the sort of thing we hold in reserve in case we have to use it, and the AF is precluding that option. And so that puts the negative burden, I think, in a slightly more permissive light, not to defend that like, a majority of all forms of aid are good or a majority of all authoritarian countries are good, but just to defend that sort of in principle, there's nothing wrong with using military aid if the situation demands it. All right. That, that's uh, more thoughts than I had about that particular phrasing, but I think I agree with those as well. Um, it's been a while since I've heard that tool in the toolbox argument. I, I think I like made that argument basically exclusively on the targeted killing topic my sophomore oh, yeah. year of high school. Targeted killing too, that was another one where that came up. Yeah, just like it's just a it's just in the tool in the toolbox, you know? Um, I'm not actually sure if it's a real argument. I don't think it has a warrant, but whatever. Um, all right, so now to the two real terms in the topic. And I assume military aid, this next term is is perhaps the most difficult to pin down. I found it particularly interesting that they chose the term military aid, which seems less widely used in the literature than terms like military assistance, um, and they instead chose military aid. And it, there doesn't appear, at least you know, from my, my reading, 
to figure out if there's a if one single correct definition. Uh, but what is military aid? So I'm not sure why I choose military aid over military assistance. I agree that they do seem to refer to the same thing in the literature base. And so, you know, just FYI to debaters out there doing research, if you're having trouble looking for evidence about military aid, maybe throw in the search term military assistance and you'll find some more evidence that's useful. But as far as the definition goes, I think I've seen two main definitions that are more or less the same thing with one important difference. One definition seems to suggest that military aid is two things. It's financing of a foreign military, like by providing grants for weapons or directly funding something. Uh, that's usually done through the FMF, the Foreign Military Financing Program, which is like an official US program. You can look it up. And the second thing that we do is training. This is again through a specific program, the IMET, which I think is International Military Education and Training. Um, might want to Google that to double check me. But basically the definition is, yeah, th these are the two things that constitute military aid as opposed to other forms of foreign aid like humanitarian aid, economic aid, development aid, et cetera. And so they're targeted at either financing a military or training the military. And so that's the more exclusive of the two definitions. The other definition I think you'll find pretty frequently, for example, on the Wikipedia page for military aid, if you look at that, is basically those two things plus peacekeeping operations or PKOs. And importantly, the PKOs that are being referred to as military aid are not United Nations PKOs, which you'll see a lot of literature about. Uh, U.S. military aid would count uh, the non-UN PKOs, so ones that the U.S. does on its own if we do independent peacekeeping, but not the sort of peacekeeping operations the United Nations does and the U.S. provides support for, which is also a good portion of PKOs. And so I think those are the two most reasonable definitions. It's either training and equipping, or training, equipping, and unilateral peacekeeping. Either those two or those three things. Uh, you might also find, just be careful, a lot of things sort of group more broadly, military and security assistance or military and security aid. And you know, that does cover a lot of international aid. So like, for example, I've seen people discussing counterproliferation. I think you'll find things like that fall into the security, the non-military security side of military aid. You can find good evidence distinguishing those two terms. But I would just uh, be careful to recognize that there's a lot of forms of aid that are even directed at sort of security uh, issues that are not necessarily military aid in nature because they target, say, civilian programs like civilian nuclear energy of a foreign country or things like infrastructure development to counter drugs, et cetera. Uh, and then one final thing to note, um, I don't think there's any definition that supports this. Nonetheless, I've already seen a few debaters make this mistake on this topic at the tournament I was at, um, is military aid is not military presence. So things like United States military bases are not covered by the topic. Getting rid of uh, military aid would not mean we end our occupation of a country. I mean, most of our bases, I think, are in non-authoritarian countries anyway, but you, you wouldn't be ending U.S. bases. You wouldn't be ending U.S. ships, aircraft carriers, planes, etc. cetera. Uh, the things that are actually owned by the United States military, the troops in the United States military, those are United States military presence, but they're not military aid just because we like have them in a foreign country. That's distinct. That's just our own military, not our aid to another military. So don't confuse this topic with the like, get rid of troops, withdraw from X country topic. That would not be covered. Yeah, I didn't think anyone would make that mistake, but a quick perusing of the high school LD debate wiki um, shows that there is more than one debater that is making that argument. And I do not know how the negative pointing out, hey, that is not the topic has not lost in the round every single time. But who knows? Um, so I guess uh, that's a pretty good comprehensive, you know, just like introduction to what 
uh, military aid is. Typically, I agree, most definitions say that it's FMF at IMET, and then there's like a bunch of relevant subcategories underneath each, all of which can be included. There are, I guess, two major questions that I think the average person might ha have about what military aid is, and so I'll, I'll pose them to you. The first one is, is does this include arms sales? Um, which I guess is a relevant question because apparently the public forum topic for February is about ending Saudi uh, arms sales to Saudi Arabia, and the new policy topic for next year is literally only about U.S. arms sales to foreign countries. Um, and so the question is, is an affirmative that makes arguments about why, for example, eliminating arms sales to Saudi Arabia uh, fall underneath the you know category of military aid? So. Saudi Arabia, although intuitively kind of seeming central to the topic, and in fact, a number of rounds I judged, uh, if not a majority, focused on Saudi Arabia, might actually not be covered by the topic just because the arms sales we provide are just direct exchanges where they, they buy the weapons and then we give them the weapons. Like if you look up funding for, say, the FMF, Saudi Arabia is not one of the countries that the money goes to. Uh, that does not mean arms sales are never uh, part of the topic because a lot of times things that we're funding might be acquisition of arms. And so if we're doing something like providing a grant to buy United weapons or providing weapons, anything like that, that would be arms acquisition, but through some sort of aid program. That would count. Um, but I think there's a good case to be made that Saudi Arabia might actually not be a directly good example of the topic just because we're not helping them get those weapons. They're a very affluent nation that's just buying them from us in a regular market exchange, not through a United States government handout or grant of any sort. And um, I don't know about uh, how decisive that goes, because a lot of people in the seem to refer, if at least in an ad hoc, just like offhand sort of way, to Saudi arms sales and military aid. But it doesn't seem to meet the main definitions that you'll find in the literature that are more technical in nature. Okay, I I I was actually kind of unsure about this, but I I because uh, Martin asked me about this when we were recording the first version of this podcast, which I lost because my computer crashed at the round robin, and I think my answer was something along the lines of there's a distinction between a direct sale and and a grant to buy uh, weapons, and I don't think Saudi Arabia technically meets that, even though I think a lot we do sell arms to a lot of places with grants, um, and right. the and the second question is. Um, how knowledgeable do you think most debaters need to be about the different types of military aid? So, for example, I randomly stumbled across, you know, a few different programs, for example, counter narcotics programs, uh, counterterrorism programs, uh, even like infrastructure rebuilding programs that are for some reason allocated to the military. Um, do you think debaters need to be aware of all of these, you know, different types of programs uh, and different types of military aid in order to, you know, effectively affirm or negate this resolution? Um, or do you think it's just fine to, like, get a broad understanding of what military aid is? That's a good question. The first thing I, I would note is, as I was discussing before, I think the best definitions of military aid will not include things like counter-narcotics. You'll find that the, the places that break them down most precisely, you know, like, you know, uh, CBO reports and stuff like that, uh, will delineate military aid and non-military security aid, or as you were saying, military assistance and non-military security assistance. And things like counter-narcotics and counter-proliferation, et cetera, fall in the latter category of non-military security. And so that's going to include things like helping police do essentially you know, local domestic policing, which is catching drug uh, offenders, or funding things like um, crop development, like helping Afghan farmers grow something else besides um, opium. Those are all things that are military, or not, they're all foreign aid, and they're arguably security aid, but I think the best definitions will say they're actually not technically military aid. So one thing that might help debaters to understand is if you understand exactly what counts as military aid and not military aid, you'll know when examples that your opponent cites, for example, those 
are, are arguably actually not instances of military aid and are arguably relevant. Uh, as far as the specific examples, I think it would be very helpful for debaters to understand both the function and the history of United States financing, uh, United States training of foreign militaries, and United States PKOs, peacekeeping operations, because those are the ones that are, th the, those are the three areas that I think are, in the first two cases, and uh, unambiguously part of the topic, and in the third case, pretty arguably part of the topic. Um, as far as those other cringe areas that might be arguably included into military aid, I think it'd be helpful to understand those, but it's not as necessary just because I think the best argument against those will usually be that's actually not technically military aid. Okay, final big term in the resolution is authoritarian regimes. Um, I mean, the definition of them is pretty straightforward. It's just like a government that concentrates political power and authority, not responsible to the people. And for some reason, they use the term regime as opposed to like state or government or whatnot. I don't really know why, but um, so I guess the the concern here is what counts as an authoritarian regime? Do you think there's like a best metric to figure it out? Um, because one of the issues that, you know, I think I've encountered so far in this topic is debaters will find a piece of evidence from some random staff writer at, at a news source that will call insert X country authoritarian because it does, you know, some bad thing. And it says that, that, that is authoritarian. And that seems to me to be a very poor way to define what an authoritarian regime is. Um, do you have any thoughts about, you know, how debaters should go about defining what an authoritarian regime is? Yeah, so uh, the first thing I'll say as a preface is I'm certainly less knowledgeable about the definition of authoritarian regimes than military aid because I haven't looked into it with you know, nearly the same degree of rigor. And so this is more me spitballing than me saying what the consensus of literature is. But my impression is that this term is actually more ill-defined than military aid just because authoritarian regime isn't necessarily like a clear classification that countries are divvied up into. And so a lot of it is journalists and such just using the term often just as a random pejorative against the country they don't like. Like I'm sure you could find for almost any country in the world someone who called it an authoritarian regime at some point. That doesn't suggest that every country in the world is an authoritarian regime, it just suggests that people use the term very loosely. And so you, you might try to find, and I'm, I'm sure this exists somewhere, like some official source, you know, data that defines what counts as an authoritarian regime or an autocracy or some similar term and uses some at least relatively um, which I'm looking for, objective, quantifiable metric, like measuring, you know, certain scores of like, you know, there's various organizations that score these things various ways. And maybe that provides some sort of delineation of which countries are and which countries aren't. Um, albeit it's still a little bit arbitrary because it's not gonna be any sort of global consensus or even consensus for the purpose of US policy. Uh, I don't think it's gonna be super necessary for most debates though, just because the topic I think is, is not gonna be about like whether, I don't know, Botswana technically counts as an authoritarian regime. I mean, maybe someone who knows about the government of Botswana can tell me how horrible that example was, or maybe it's on point. But, uh, you know, imagine some French countries that may or may not count as authoritarian regimes. You know, whether or not they're technically authoritarian regimes uh, is probably not going to be super relevant, given that there's, at minimum, dozens of authoritarian regimes in the world. And again, as we're discussing, potentially in the future, more or less. And so, the, the truth of the topic isn't going to hinge so much on whether like one particular country does really need or doesn't really need aid because there's a lot of authoritarian regimes out there, many of them get used military aid. And so any affirmative or negative is going to have to make a much broader statement than just like, you know, Chad really needs military aid or something like that, or um, 
Central African Republic absolutely does not need military aid. Now, even if those were true in isolation, they might, it would just be like one example. And so the sort of technical distinction of like, does this country or does it not meet the definition of the Jaren regime? I think that they only really gets to you just like, is this one example applicable or somewhat inapplicable, but maybe still relevant? And so I think that's going to be less important in most debates. Yeah, so I think there are two major things that I'll, I'll toss in here. First is, uh, the, generally speaking, because of the last couple of topics, most debaters have been gravitating towards the Economist Index, uh, or EIU, or whatever it's called, um, Economist Intelligence Unit, that's what it is. And it has a democracy index that it uses to rank authoritarian regimes. And that has been typically the accepted uh, way of figuring out you know, which regime is authoritarian or not. Um, and I think that's a much better way of interpreting what counts as an authoritarian regime. Um, because again, random staff writers, I don't think are qualified to like define an authoritarian regime and then sort of give a reason why. And then of course, the second big thing is there are some people that might interpret authoritarian regimes is plural. Therefore, all I have to do is demonstrate that the United States ought not provide military aid to some non-zero number of authoritarian regimes, but it does not have to be all of them. It doesn't have to be what I think most debaters would call the general principle. Now, I think this view is obviously incorrect, um, but you have written comments about this on the V Briefly uh, post uh, that most directly uh, is associated with this question. And so can you give us perhaps brief reason for why you think the topic does not allow affirmative debaters to merely claim that eliminating military aid to just two or more authoritarian regimes is sufficient to affirm. Yeah, so I mean, I guess the first thing I'll say, the, the comments that Lawrence is referencing, I'll just go ahead and make that plug explicit. If you want a more thorough understanding of this particular argument or this aspect of the topic, look up the article uh, Existential Bear Plurals and Quantifier Scope by Jake Niebel, who was published recently on V Briefly. Uh, that's the article Lawrence is talking about, and it goes into much more depth uh, then I'm about to on exactly what's going on with the, the grammar of the revolution and what that means. But the brief version is that with a, a plural term without a determiner, so if you just say something like dogs, but you don't say two dogs or all dogs, it leaves open exactly how many dogs you're referring to. And one way to interpret it is to just like have oh, two or more dogs. And the other way to interpret it is dogs in general. So to give two examples, like dogs have four legs, clearly refers to dogs in general. But dogs are in the yard does not refer to just like in, in general, the principle of dogs is that they're in my yard. And so those are the two possible ways in the abstract of interpreting a, a bare plural like authoritarian regimes. And so then the question is, which uh, is the resolution using? I think it's pretty clear just you know, to anyone who speaks English that the topic is meant to talk about the sort of generic reading, the one that's sort of talking about, in principle, what do the United States do with respect to authoritarian regimes, not any particular authoritarian regimes. Uh, that's how most plurals work outside of specific contexts, or most bare plurals work outside of specific contexts. And it's just also kind of intuitive, and intuition is a pretty good barometer here. Um, but importantly, and I think this is actually perhaps even more decisive, is debaters are going to make this mistake, in fact, debaters have already made the mistake in rounds that I've judged, of making this argument that, oh, well, sometimes plural, like just a word with an S on it, technically means two or more. Therefore, the topic really could just be interpreted as any two regimes. And that argument actually would end up working in the reverse. And a debater who makes that argument would inadvertently be putting an even more uh, extreme burden upon themselves. Rather than just arguing that in general this is true, if you argue that the topic is referring to any two authoritarian regimes, 
um, what you've actually done is set your burden as to prove that military aid must be removed from at minimum all but one, if not that, then all authoritarian regimes. And the reason for that is because when you negate an existential quantification, so if you say not two or more, that's functionally equivalent to the sort of universal statement. If I say there's not even two authoritarian regimes that deserve aid, I'm making a statement about essentially almost every single one. I'm saying at most there's one, there can't be two or more. And so if you interpreted the topic to say, ah, technically it's two or more, what you've actually done for yourself is to say, my burden is to prove that all but two uh, do not receive United States military aid. And so inadvertently, I think debaters trying to argue about this ambiguity and how um, pluralization works end up arguing the opposite the way they want to. And note that this one, this one has like, I mean, although it's usually silly, it's at least logically consistent on most topics. So debaters who remember this argument existing on previous topics and not being as obviously logically places, just bear in mind that this is a particular thing that's true about this topic because of the, the not, again, ought not in this resolution, changes things up a bit. Um, the nature of it is that when you say ought not existential, you know, two or more, that would, that's what creates a sort of universal judgment if you can't even do two. And so, whereas previous resolutions are usually positively worded and just said, the U.S. should provide aid to two or more countries, or something like that, there you could plausibly, like, you know, jerry-rig the topic to, to mean, you know, ah, any two countries, whatever. Uh, this topic, I think, even on the slightly, or not slightly, extremely dubious reading, would actually end up not getting you that. So I don't think there's any good way to make this topic just about it, two regimes. And certainly not one regime, just because the word plural. Yeah. Um, you know, so I... I tend to think that, that that argument is just true and I don't really know how to get around it. Um, and I think that this topic is really just a question of whether or not, you know, sort of as a general principle, um, the United States ought not provide military aid to authoritarian regimes. I guess the last question to do with a resolutional interpretation is, so the affirmative sort of generally says we shouldn't provide military aid to authoritarian regimes and the negative says, well, we should make an exception. Uh, to one particular authoritarian regime. We ought to provide military aid to, you know, insert uh, one of the more authoritarian regimes in the world and argues for why there are strong benefits to doing that. Do you think that that negates this, the affirmative? I would say that it doesn't seem to. Again, there's, there's a difference between a generic generalization and a categorical or universal statement. If I said something like, dogs have four legs, uh, hopefully everyone would say, yeah, that's true, dogs have four legs. Uh, and yet, there is almost certainly yeah, there's, there's certainly at least one dog on the planet that's got three legs. Probably some dogs that have two legs, maybe one or zero legs. Um, what a very so sad gifts. I said dogs have four legs. You pointed to a counterexample, and yet we all would I think pretty uh, immediately say dogs have four legs is true. And the reason why that works is because a generic generalization is one that's sort of in principle true or uh, holistically true, but not necessarily true of every single specific instance. And so the app could say something like, you know, the, the sort of principle or the unbalanced judgment of the United States ought not provide military to authoritarian regimes is true, even if there's like one or two very specific ex exceptions where like the context mandates to do something different. And so I think that sort of very particular examples aren't going to negate unless you can show how that example is generalizable and suggest some broader conclusion that we should draw about most countries. All right. Yeah, that that seems to be my intuition as as well. I for some reason, always gravitate towards the dogs with legs example, but that might just be because Jake uses it in every single one of his articles. Okay. Um, I think that covers really most of the general interpretational issues about this topic. Are there any 
other things that you think might be relevant? Um, one last thing worth referencing, I guess, kind of related to that, is I think there might be a better argument for the app having to defend more categorically all forms of military aid are ended to whichever set of countries it's referring to. Uh, I think the way to think about this is kind of the thing we are discussing a second ago, which is military aid refers to any of three things. If you are giving official training to, let's just say, I don't know, Bahrain, um, and we're training Bahrain police officers, or military officers, rather, um, it would be true to say, anyone would say, yes, the U.S. is providing military aid to Bahrain, even if we're not doing PKOs, even if we're not doing foreign military financing. Similarly, like if we're providing foreign military financing to Guatemala back in the 80s or whenever we did that, uh, we would say the U.S. is providing aid to Guatemala, even if we're not doing the other two major areas, training or um, PKOs. And so what that suggests is foreign military or military aid is any of those things, those two things, those three things, or maybe more if you interpret the topic more expansively than that. And so if the topic is any of those three things, you know, the immediate reaction of the debaters might just be, oh, the app gets to pick one. But that same thing about negation applies here, which is if you say not any of three things, what you've actually got is the conclusion, none of those three things. And so if as long as we're providing one form of aid to a country, it would then be true that the U.S. is providing aid to the country. Saying we ought not provide aid would then imply we ought not be providing any aid. Because if we just cut off two forms of aid but provide a third, we're still providing aid. And so I think the app might not have to be categorical in scope with respect to countries, but I do think the app arguably has to be categorical in scope with respect to aiding or not. So it still has to say that in general, for most countries, we should be providing no military aid. The app can't just say, well, uh, IMET sucks. We shouldn't provide that aid to most countries. That affirms. Because if we're still providing, most countries will say grants or peacekeeping or whatever, we're still providing military aid. And so... I think there's a good argument for interpreting the act burden as, with respect to the mechanism as being probably categorical. They have to end all aid to some amount uh, generally of countries. That is reasonable. I actually did not think about that, but it is a relevant consideration, especially in some of the debates that um, I'm coaching. So maybe I should have thought about that. Okay, cool. Um, I'm pretty sure that's about as comprehensive as we're going to get without actually putting some of the listeners to sleep. So. I guess when we come back, we'll just start jumping into some of the affirmative and negative arguments. All right, so welcome back. And we're going to be talking about some three common affirmative arguments. Uh, we'll discuss briefly you know, what they are, how to research them, and then some potential ways the negative could respond to them. And of course, mixed in there, we'll talk a little bit about potential value criterions slash frameworks that you could use to pair with these. Um, I will say as a sort of general overview that this is not a topic that is as conducive to philosophical debate as previous ones, especially the other ones from this season, which had a lot more in the way of philosophy going for it. And the other thing that's kind of annoying is that the negative is relatively restricted in terms of its philosophical options, even though the affirmative has some uh, they're not very great, and there's you know certainly a limited amount of options, at least relative to the typical uh, assortment that most topics present. So most of these arguments are going to be couched, you know, a little bit more in terms of consequentialism than some previous topic analyses, because truly and honestly, there's not that much outside of it that this topic invites. 
So we'll start with the first one, and this is the one that perhaps does not need to be entirely consequentialist, but for some reason always ends up getting deployed in such a way. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, human rights. Um, so the way that I understand this argument is that, generally speaking, the United States should not support authoritarian regimes by providing them for military by providing the military aid because that they are such notorious abusers of human rights. And there's either some reason to suspect that it is intrinsically good to not provide them aid, perhaps by avoiding being a culpable actor and assisting these human rights violations, or there's some instrumental good in removing this military aid because it might change their behavior in some way. Um, I guess we should talk about both of these in term, uh, in turn, and then figure out you know some some ways to research this argument. Um, so for starters, um, are there any other any other thoughts of the sort of core basis of this argument that you have to add? Um, I think you you covered the the generics of it pretty well. Uh, I'll I'll go ahead and start. I guess I think that the again. Uh, referencing back to the sanctions topic, which I think was not dissimilar from this, the way that a uh, debater is, uh, on that topic it was on the negative, but on this topic it will be on the affirmative, tried to make this argument uh, sound more philosophical in nature, was to make it sort of an argument about, um, what's the word I'm looking for, like aiding and abetting essentially, being equivalent to committing an act yourself of wrongdoing. And so a lot of negatives on the sanctions topic made an argument that if we have normalized economic relations with the country and they're doing something like committing a genocide against their people, the, the blood is in some sense on our hands because we're providing the sort of economic backbone of that country that is then turning around and doing bad things to its citizens. And we can't just sort of turn a blind eye to the way the United States is part and parcel of that process. And I think that argument could potentially be even stronger on this topic just because rather than economic relations in general, this topic is specifically about uh, military aid, so helping that country's military. And so we are very, very directly and overtly providing the weapons and the training that are being then used in many cases to crack down innocent civilians, uh, democratic activists, opposition groups, etc. And so it would be kind of hard to argue that that's purely incidental and not something that the U.S. Uh, would clearly recognize, if not actively be supporting when they're providing that. And so you could argue that you know, in, insofar as you think that there's some sort of moral obligation you know, not to commit genocide, which sounds pretty plausible to me, then that should also extend to a moral obligation not to be complicit with or aid another country in committing genocide, because that would make you, uh, if not equally responsible, then at least similarly responsible. And the way that, you know, the law could treat you as an accessory to murder, we should treat, you know, morally the United States as being an accessory to atrocities when it helps authoritarian countries commit gross human rights violations. Yeah, um, that seems you know pretty straightforward to me, I, it, and to me it seems like one of the stronger arguments on the topic, if not one of the just like more true statements in general. Now, I earlier brought up a distinction between perhaps affirmatives that pursued this as a sort of intrinsic versus instrumental good. Uh, do you think there's a pre preferable approach? Uh, you know, one or the other. You know, if so, why? So in my mind, it always makes strategic sense on this particular topic for the AF to introduce this claim initially as being a non-consequentialist argument, just some sort of intrinsic moral obligation. And the reason for that, as you referenced a minute ago, is that the negative is kind of pigeonholed into more pragmatic utilitarian grounds. Just because there's no, I mean, maybe it exists, but I haven't found it yet. None come to mind, any sort of moral obligations that just suggest there's sort of like an intrinsic moral obligation to help dictators and give them more weapons. 
all the negative arguments are going to in some way hinge on the sort of practical necessity of doing that because we need to like fight terrorism or because we need to win a war or whatever. No one's going to argue that just in and of itself there's a moral obligation to provide weapons to uh, authoritarian countries. And so as the app, if you know that the negative, all of their orgs really, really hinge on a consequentialist framing about the pragmatic effects, then even if you are fine debating pragmatic effects, you should recognize that comparatively speaking, that's the framework that most favors your opponent. And any other framework gives the negative a higher burden in the 1 and C of not only winning their contentions, but then also winning their consequentialist framework. And so if I'm the affirmative, even if I ultimately want to become the 2AR, creating this human rights arg in a consequentialist fashion about the total number of human rights being huge and being very severe and outweighing other harms, I would still think I should introduce it in the AC as being a sort of deontological claim about you know the intrinsic uh, worth of people or some sort of intrinsic wrongdoing, just because I know that kind of inevitably the negative has to take a more pragmatic route in the NC. And then once they do that, I'm free to pivot if I want to, but there's no point in go ahead and giving you the negative, the framework they want the most from the AC, and then allowing them to just neglect the framework debate entirely. I saw debaters, in fact, in, in the one term I've judged so far, spending large amounts of time justifying utilitarianism in the AC, which struck me as a huge strategic mistake because, in fact, in every single one of those rounds, the negative would just go in to concede it, all that time was wasted. And so I think that the AF probably wants to at least make the neg do the legwork of justifying utilitarianism by initially positing these claims as non-utilitarian in nature. Yeah, um, I agree with that 100% because that is almost entirely how I approached debating in Oklahoma, which is that I knew I could beat almost any given debater in Oklahoma. Um, well, yeah, for sure. Uh, on the sort of just pragmatics, like I, I just had a lot of research, had a lot of evidence, and typically speaking, the topics bias the affirmative in, in those worlds anyways. But I was, <coughs> excuse me, always much more comfortable uh, in, in forcing the negative to have to win their philosophical justifications for their arguments. Um, because either I could just out-philosophy them, or that is just wasted time on their part, and the one error will pivot to whatever I want to talk about anyways. And so I, I think that is almost always the, the way to go. Um, and certainly, I think there's nothing stopping the affirmative from making both claims in the affirmative case. You know, contention one, something along the lines of there being some intrinsic good to refusing complicity in authoritarian regimes and the human rights abuses they commit. And contention two being about how removing military aid is an effective form of leverage to get them to change their behavior and minimize those human rights abuses and clarify, I don't need to win both of these to win the round. This, it's sort of an even if, um, and you can win either of them to, to win the debate. Um, this seems like a very straightforward and easy one to research. Doesn't seem that difficult uh, to find um, evidence that says, you know, we should end military aid to regimes that commit human rights abuses, both for intrinsic goods like, you know, refusing complicity and also for, uh, you know, uh, consequentialist reasons that it would sort of leverage and change their behavior. I guess the one part that might be difficult for people to research is the philosophical element that says there is something good in and of itself about refusing to assist authoritarian regimes. Now, I know you cut some evidence about this because I was just reading it, uh -huh. but can you briefly mention, you know, one place that you might be able to find that, that philosophical evidence? Uh, yeah, I did cut a few of that. I think they ended up in the Victor Brees evidence packet. Uh, I think that a general place to look is you probably want to research sort of international law uh, literature because that's going to discuss the sort of global obligations of countries with relation to one another. In terms like complicity, 
uh, is probably a good term or anything like that that would reference a country's failure to distance itself from another country and how that might be uh, especially morally important. Another term that uh, I know I used in some of the evidence was shunning. Uh, I'm not sure how generally true this is in the majority of literature, but I remember it being common on the sanctions topic at least, which is why I went back to it, because a lot of the sanctions evidence was in the context of using an economic sanction as a means of shunning another regime. And so I think you, at the very least, there's some literature, certainly, on this sort of obligation to shun violators of international norms, you know, countries that are, you know, rampantly oppressive and things like that. And so I think if, if you're looking for this sort of moral literature, I would look in areas like that. So I think we've hinted at this, which is how can the negative respond um, to this affirmative uh, argument? And I, more or less, I think we've covered it, which is that against those more philosophical claims about the affirmative saying, hey, we should just, you know, we have a moral duty to not be complicit within these art, uh, within this military aid. The negative is really gonna have to pivot uh, towards winning the sort of pragmatic benefits of military aid end up outweighing um, or being more important than that moral obligation that one has. And to affirmative arguments that, you know, sort of rely on leverage uh, and changing the decisions and the, and the behavior of authoritarian regimes, um, the negative certainly needs to make some inroads there, a few responses that come to mind would be, you know, there is no good evidence that the United States ha removing military aid would in fact alter their behavior. Um, a good example is like Egypt, where we'll occasionally withdraw some aid from them uh, and then cave after a while anyways and give them their aid back. And it doesn't really change the way that they, they you know, uh, have, have deal with human rights and doesn't change the way that they're, uh, you know, um, the way that their government works. Um, you know, and there's just not that much reason to suspect that just removing aid is in any way like a strong incentive to, to change behavior. Um, any other things the negative should try to say against these affirmative arguments? Yeah, so first I think attacking the, the pragmatic side of things, whether the AF as a consequence actually reduces human rights. In addition to the generic behavior art, another art that I think is going to be somewhat common is going to be that these countries might just turn elsewhere. Uh, this came up recently in the discussion about Saudi arms sales. Uh, it got a few headlines because I remember, I think it was Trump commented probably in a tweet that just like, oh, well, if we don't sell them, Russia or China or someone else will. And I don't know how true or false that claim is, but there's definitely some literature in both directions on it. And so you'll probably find some debaters, I've already seen this argument show up a few times, argue things like, well, if we don't sell the weapons, that just opens the room for China to sweep in and expand its sphere of influence, or for Russia to do the same. And that maybe those countries, insofar as they care even less about human rights than the United States does, or because they have inferior weapons that are more faulty and less precision-based, might end up exacerbating the sorts of harms. And so that's one way to challenge it at the pragmatic level. At the, the sort of moral level about the sort of obligation not to ever be complicit, I think the NEG might want to push maybe on the, the sort of threshold because, you know, although it's true, uh, almost certainly, it's like if we were encountered with like the most egregious example of human rights abuse, you know, like an uh, overt genocide, and we're like giving the weapons to the people doing it, we might not want to be complicit in that. It's not exactly obvious that like every country that is authoritarian, uh, you know, read, doesn't have a formal election system, is necessarily rampantly abusing its citizens at, this, at the level of a genocide. And so you might ask, is the obligation so categorical that like every country that commits any human rights abuses we just can't do business with? If so, that suggests just like a ridiculously isolationist paradigm for United States policy that doesn't really interact with how the real world works and where we have to deal with you know less than perfect countries, including ourselves. 
or if it's a, a relatively high threshold, like only the worst of cases require active intervention and complete distancing, then in that case, is it really the case that every authoritarian government meets that? Or should we simply you know, write off the few authoritarian regimes like North Korea that are so beyond the pale that we can't do business with them? But that there are many that, although they might not be you know, proper functioning democracies, might not necessarily be the worst human rights abuses. And you know, some, you know, it might be the case that there's some democracies even that have more human rights abuses than more authoritarian regimes. So the name might push it. Why is the level of agreed human rights abuse set at exactly lack of full democracy, something like that? All seem like reasonable responses a negative can make. All righty. Argument number two that the affirmative uh, would make uh, generally has to do with something about the propensity of authoritarian regimes to cause conflict or to sponsor terrorism um, and arguments about how military aid uh, and removing it is capable of resolving um, external conflicts, internal conflicts, or terrorism. So. I have done less research on this topic, so I'll just ask the expert here. Um, what are you know some of the things that the affirmative should be aware of when they're researching and looking at this argument and when they're making it in debate rounds? So a, a few affirmative-leaning versions of this argument. Uh, the first and hopefully most obvious is that there is a correlation between weapons and war. Uh, obviously, giving countries more weapons and training them to use those weapons makes it easier for them to kill people and then use them to wage war. And so it's very, very eminently plausible for the app to argue that if we want to minimize either conflict with foreign countries or even internal conflict, like suppressing um, you know, civil revolts, that we shouldn't provide these countries with more weapons because that just only facilitates their ability to engage more. There's definitely literature that says that. It should be kind of obvious, but there are authors who will you know, make that explicit. Secondly, there is the sort of perverse incentive that the United States creates where, oh, there's a, say, potential hotbed of terrorism in your country. We're going to provide you weapons because you need to combat terrorism. Now that country recognizes we get oodles of funding from the United States only insofar as there's a terror problem in our borders and that makes it worthwhile to fund us. Do we have an incentive to stop the terrorism? No. We might you know, keep it from getting out of hand if need be, but we don't actually want to eliminate the terrorist groups because if we do that, the U.S. isn't going to give us weapons anymore. And so you end up uh, end sort of backfiring because if you provide the weapons for pragmatic purposes like eliminating the, the terror, then you create incentives for more terror because then they allow the terrorism to continue in order to keep the weapons fund, the weapons fund flowing. And then finally, one argument that you'll definitely find in literature, especially with respect to terrorism, is that providing weapons to brutal dictatorships and stuff doesn't make us very popular with the local civilians, shockingly enough. And if we're perceived as abetting repression of, say, democratic activists or just innocent civilians uh, more broadly, then it makes countries and citizens of those countries like us less, and it breeds more resentment both towards the government that's repressing them and towards the U.S. who is helping to repress the government. And so that can spawn things like insurgencies, terrorism, etc., because you're creating the sort of conditions for radicalization that make more people more likely to engage in violent actions. All these arguments you can find in literature, by the way, you just research the connection between military aid and terrorism or between internal conflict. All right. That was pretty in-depth. Um, it seems like one of the more uh, contentious affirmative arguments, though, because the empirical evidence that, that demonstrates the success of withdrawing military aid in 
uh, you know, altering the decisions of these authoritarian regimes isn't entirely clear one way or the other. And so, you know, I, I guess this question is both relevant to affirmative and negative debaters, but what are things that debaters need to know to be able to effectively defend and beat back this argument, especially at the level of the empirical question? There will be some empirical evidence on both sides. And so it's important if you're making an argument like this, that's largely statistical in nature, you know, amount of terrorism, amount of conflict, to not just find a piece of evidence that technically is someone doing a study and reaching your side of the conclusion, but finding a good study and making sure you're familiar with that study, what are the author's qualifications, how recent was it, what was the data set, and why is it in general a particularly good study to cite. Because what's gonna often happen is you might have one piece of evidence and then your opponent might have another piece of evidence as happens in debate. And then you'll need to go the next level down and say, well, here's why your evidence doesn't account for everything. It only measured, say, the direct impact of terrorism and not the sort of indirect long-term incentives to fund future terrorist groups or something like that. That could explain why your evidence is more comprehensive and more reliable than your opponents. And that's how you win those debates when you have some evidence on both sides. You're the one who goes the next step deeper and says why the judge would prefer your evidence. I see a lot of people, and like I, I know I was just mentioning, like I cut the, the, the briefs packet, uh, but I will go ahead and dissuade you from relying too much on things like pre-written briefs, because if all you have is like a, a card with a tag and that's all you know about the card, you're not going to know enough about the evidence, the sort of background, and understand it well enough to defend it if it's closely scrutinized or if you're putting counter evidence. And so it's really important to understand the empirics very deeply on any issue where there's empirics on both sides so that you can compare them. Yeah, I agree, because like one of the most... Uh, frustrating things as a judge is like, I have a study, but I have another study, and that is sort of where the debate ends up, even after the fifth speech, and you're just like, well, either I flip a coin, or I, as a judge, get to go through and read these studies and figure out which one's better, and neither of those seem like particularly good for um, debate. Um, and so, yeah, this seems like one of the more interesting questions on the topic, but certainly one of the more difficult ones to effectively uh, win in a lot of debates, uh, because the empirical evidence one way or the other is so uh, so muddled. Um, <clears throat> are there any other sort of like strategy or just like last minute pieces of uh, advice or comments about this, this, this set of arguments? Nothing really comes to mind. Yeah, I, it's, it's, uh, it's a good argument. It's just one that I think you need to go and do the research on. And there's only so much that the brilliant Jacob Nails can tell you about it before it's just up to you to go out and do the research yourself. Okay, so the final argument here is about the credibility of the United States, which, you know, let's be honest, it's not super high right now, but it could be better uh, potentially if we stopped providing military aid to a bunch of very openly and obviously bad authoritarian regimes. And one thing that you'll notice when you're doing the topic research is the United States funds a lot of dictatorships in the world. There's like this truth out article that says that the United States funds like 75% uh, or it gives military aid to like 75% of the dictatorships in the world. And we're not, it does not make us look very good. And there's some argument to be made by the affirmative that, uh, you know, ending our military aid to these authoritarian regimes would improve the credibility of the United States, at least in terms of its relation to human rights and to its support of democracy. And that that might be, you know, good for a litany of different reasons um, to which I will leave Jacob Nails to ex uh, expand upon. Yeah, so I think affirmative arguments of this nature are just going to make claims about how not just in the context of the countries we're talking about, the authoritarian regimes themselves, but as far as the globe as a whole goes, our efforts at promoting democracy and human rights are going to be undermined if 
we are ourselves engaging the sort of duplicitous actions of supporting authoritarian regimes. And so, you know, hypothetically, let's say the United States is trying to pressure China on its support for North Korea. It's very easy for China to, you know, point the finger back and say, well, what about your support for, you know, I don't know Egypt, Saudi Arabia, etc.? And it's hard for us to really exert consistent pressure on other countries that might be less pro-human rights if we are ourselves not even consistent with our own admonitions. And so the app might want to argue that we really need to get our own cards in order by cutting funding to authoritarian regimes before we can exert pressure. And then they might want to argue that things like the United States pressuring other countries to promote human rights or exerting its influence for good is an important aspect of international relations. And even if not direct pressure, you know, even if the U.S. isn't the one directly putting pressure on other countries, we'll always be the scapegoat if we are one of the biggest countries in the world in most respects, and we're directly engaging in support for authoritarianism. Whether we're the ones pressuring China or not, maybe China's um, facing internal uh, revolt or pressure from the United Nations or some other group of countries. In any case, they'll be able to point to, hey, look, the U.S., this is basically our closest peer competitor. They're doing the same thing we're doing. Why are you pointing the finger at us? And so it's hard to get the ball rolling on broader movements towards democracy and human rights if we're not setting a good example for ourselves. And I think you can probably try to argument in a lot of slightly different ways, but that'll be the general gist of it for the affirmative. Yeah, I mean, I, I seem to recall us more or less defending a similar claim when we were debating together in a, in a policy-style debate on the public forum topic um, from September, October, arguing that the United States needed to ratify UNCLOS to maintain its uh, st uh, to sort of maintain its credibility as it came to international agreements like the law of the sea. Um, and so we make it a lot, but you know, maybe the, we make this argument a lot in debate, but maybe the problem is, is uh, the United States is just really bad about its consistency on issues like human rights, democracy, and the free press and stuff like that. It's uh, kind of unfortunate. Yeah, so I think <laughs> this does bring up one of the bigger objections that the negative might want to point out, which is it's not as if were we to end military age to all authoritarian regimes, that we would just then become a paragon of human rights. The negative could point out a litany of alternative causes that also make us look bad. For example, our failure to ratify all sorts of international agreements, law of the sea included, Paris uh, Climate Accords being another, our use of targeted killing obviously doesn't always go over well, uh, Guantanamo Bay is pretty big black eye, um, death penalty a lot of countries look at us very negatively for. There's tons and tons of stuff the United States does, obviously. Um, the wall is currently obviously a big issue a lot of Latin American countries, Mexico in particular. And so it's easy for the night to say, well, look, you might be right. This is one step in the right direction, but you can't act like it's the end all be all of United States human rights credibility. And uh, honestly, that's pretty true. So if you're the affirmative, I think you have to recognize that there's more than one grain of truth to that argument. And you, what you want to say is, a, you know, play up as much as possible how significant military aid is as being one of the most direct and obvious shows of support for authoritarianism and how that might be a bigger cause than these other examples. But then B, you also just probably want to recognize that, like, look, Nick, you're right that this one isn't going to be the one linchpin of all human rights credibility, but it's this broader iterative process of promoting human rights. And we always, you know, it's always important to take the first step when we can. And the fact that we're doing other bad stuff shouldn't be an excuse not to do stuff here. And if we want to slowly rebuild our image, we should start somewhere. And this is a good place to start thinking. Yeah, I, like, because if the Neg's argument was just like, we do other bad stuff is, is true, the conclusion shouldn't be like, all right, never do good stuff. Uh, it just should be, we should do more, you know, not bad stuff, more good stuff. Um, so 
you know, I, the neg is probably correct that the affirmative is not going to solve all of its issues surrounding human rights credibility. But, you know, military aid is a pretty big part of it. Like, it's it's hard to uh, imagine like that, like other programs that are so well known as just like America's consistent support for a bunch of dictatorships while it constantly preaches the value of spreading democracy. Um, but yes, I agree. It's uh, one of the more difficult affirmative arguments to win just because the United States is ultimately not that great at maintaining its credibility. And the negative should be quite willing to point it out. Um, all right, well, that seems like most of the main affirmative arguments uh, covered. Um, are there any sort of last minute just thoughts about the AF as, a, as in general? Um, like maybe some of the things that it should be aware of strategically or just like comment about the goodness of an affirmative side that starts, you know, that isn't like super biased, uh, a topic that isn't super biased towards a neg or something like that. No, not necessarily. I, I mean, my last two things for the affirmative is you're always going to be on the more rhetorically powerful side of the issue. And so maybe try to use the two arity advantage. Obviously, judges probably intuitively want to vote for authoritarianism is bad. We shouldn't give those people weapons. And so if you can sell that very effectively with some persuasive examples, that might help you a lot on this topic. Yeah, I, I agree. It Like the ethos and the pathos here is, is pretty strong, which if you listen to our um, judge adaptation episode, you'll know more about. Okay, uh, when we come back, we'll briefly discuss some of the common negative arguments on this topic, and then we'll go into our conclusion. Okay, so in this section, we're going to discuss some common negative arguments on the topic. Um, we're actually going to discuss four of them instead of three, mostly because the fourth argument is is a kind of a broad, you know, uh, it's a it's a sort of broad argument that ends up encompassing the other three in some way, shape, or form. But it's important enough to discuss on its own. As we mentioned in the earlier sec segment, uh, the negative is more or less pigeonholed into making arguments almost entirely related to the pragmatics of providing. Uh, um, military aid to these authoritarian regimes. And as such, we're not going to really delve that much into the philosophical justifications for these because almost all of them will be consequentialist in some form or fashion and will argue for why the sort of impacts that uh, providing military aid to authoritarian regimes has is are, are good um, and almost always for very consequentialist reasons. So we'll start with the first one, uh, probably the most common one on this topic, uh, which is just that military aid to authoritarian regimes is necessary for stability. Um, and there's a bunch of different reasons for why that might be the case. And I'll let Jacob talk about some of those. So this is mostly going to be the counterpart to the argument we're discussing in the affirmative, where we listed three reasons why military aid might exacerbate regional problems like instability and terrorism. That argument is not unidirectional. The negative could also make this argument in a number of ways. You might argue that it's important to provide military aid to fight terrorists because some of our best weapons against terrorism are going to be local people on the ground who live in that region who are willing to fight against terrorism in their own backyard but are unable to due to lack of weapons. And so, you know, take for example, ISIS obviously is uh, a terror group that we are strongly opposed to in terms of our foreign policy and also one that many of those countries in the region are opposed to. And so it might make sense for the United States to provide weapons to a regime if they were using those weapons to counter ISIS because in the sort of enemy of our enemy of my enemy is my friend logic, I said that right, yeah. yeah. Uh, in that sort of uh, rationale, it makes sense. Even if we don't necessarily support that country very much directly, the least bad thing is for, say, a sham democracy or a somewhat uh, unrepresentative country to have weapons, than for ISIS to run them over and have like uh, a horrible, you know, even worse 
human rights um, bad thing on, on our hands. Words are failing me at the moment, but you get the idea. Obviously, the least bad option is to give the weapons to the country that's less bad than the terror group. Something like that, I think, could work. Uh, likewise, you could argue in terms of domestic insurgency that those sorts of things might even cause more instability, and it, there's no guarantee that the domestic insurgency that were to happen would be instilling a democratic government. It might just be taking over for its own personal interests. And so there could be value in reducing the capacity for domestic insurgency by just providing the ability to maintain stability and order. And so weapons, again, have practical utility, not just in waging war offensively, but defensively. And so that might be the, the negative version of this argument. Likewise, you know, the negative can argue, sort of in, in contrast to that example earlier from the affirmative, that even if the incentive might not necessarily be very high for countries to completely end terrorism in the region, because then they might still they might lose out on their own funding, there's definitely less incentive in what we're providing the military aid for those countries to proactively abet terrorists of their own. Obviously, one big issue with terrorism is state sponsors of terror. And that's one of the best ways for terrorists to turn from a small grassroots movement of killing a few people to a much larger transnational threat, is getting official government backing, funding, and so forth. And so the NEG might argue that the incentive is much lower for countries to proactively go out and help terrorist groups if they're on our payroll instead. And so winning their allegiance in that specific respect might be important. And so there's a number of ways, but the gist of this is just the negative arguing that weapons can have a role in deterring and preventing conflict. Or likewise, training and peacekeeping can have a role in deterring and preventing conflict. There's definitely evidence on peacekeeping reducing conflict as well. All right. Uh, pretty simple to me. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, this is the sort of flip side to the affirmative argument. So when the affirmative is responding to this, they're really just going to kind of assert the truth of their original claims and sort of compare it. And once again, this is an empirical question that does require that debaters get relatively familiar with the empirical literature and the studies that are backing this, um, as well as being able to, I think, explain in a very easy to understand manner for the judge, the sort of overarching picture and the story of what the effects of military aid are. Because, you know, it's one thing to have a study uh, but humans, uh, for better or for worse, are very drawn to the narrative that is being presented here. And so if you can provide a compelling narrative for why military aid works the way it does, that's going to be a lot easier to convince a lot of judges, um, especially judges who might hear abstract numbers and it may not resonate with them, even though it should because humans are irrational. Um, okay, so the, the second major negative argument is... Uh, you know, perhaps better categorized as a response to a lot of affirmative arguments, but could be its own argument on its own. And that's uh, an argument that we call fill-in. Um, we mentioned it <clears throat> briefly on the other side uh, of affirmative arguments as a potential negative response. And the basic idea here is that, look, these authoritarian regimes are going to exist. Uh, it's not like removing military aid or, or anything, really. It's just going to, like, make them poof, uh, vanish. And if we do not provide them aid, the alternative to us doing it is likely some other actor who is even more devious and less well-intentioned than we are, if you can imagine such a thing exists. And as much as you might find the idea of the United States providing, you know, F-16 fighters to a particular nation abhorrent, imagine China or Russia, um, those two being the big examples, being the suppliers of weapons and, and uh and like tanks and fighter jets and military intelligence and stuff like that. And so actually when the United States is the one that is providing the aid, they're actually the ones that are preventing even worse actors from coming in and gaining uh, a regional foothold and expanding their influence in ways that are detrimental, not only to the United States, but also perhaps to the world at large. Um, 
I feel very little need to explain this argument more, given that it's it's pretty straightforward. Um, but I'll ask you, Jacob: Are there any other things that you that negative debaters should be familiar when they're debating this argument? I think you got the the core picture. I've already seen this argument a few times, so I expect that it'll probably be pretty common, just based on the the few rounds of judged already. And I saw some evidence already that was pretty decent. On there was a comparative study for, uh, one debater had that just looked at aid from countries that weren't China and aid from countries that were China. And apparently aid from countries that aren't China doesn't have too much effect, but aid from China proactively increased conflict in a number of places where they provided it. And so that was a nice comparative evidence that the, this particular person had suggesting that China filling might proactively be worse because um, aid from China seems to have a worse effect on uh, increasing regional conflagrations than um, other forms of aid from other countries. That does not surprise me. Um, so, and it seems like a very strong negative argument and a very, very uh, popular one, as you mentioned. I've already seen it many times because it's a good, uh, it's a good like uh, argument that applies to virtually every affirmative. And it even better will be able to turn a lot of the affirmative's arguments. So every affirmative argument that we mentioned previously, such as human rights or like conflict or credibility, all of that is potentially worsened in a world in which the United States vacates that spot and allows a much worse actor to take its place. And so I think that's one of the strategic implications of this argument is that it, it not only has a big external impact, which might be China aid causes war, but it might also turn a lot of the affirmative arguments. All right. Third yeah. argument is called uh, national interest. Um, I'm going to just let Jacob talk about this one. Yeah, so this covers kind of a basket of issues. This one is more the flip side of the AF's human rights credibility argument, which is the negative might argue that we need credibility not just with the already very liberalized democratic world, but we also need credibility with the struggling democracies, the authoritarian regimes, the, the developing world that doesn't already have uh, full-fledged good governance. And that maybe providing military aid to those countries is one way to sort of get them on our side of the... Uh, the ballpark on various issues. And there's definitely some evidence to support this. You can find this in the literature. I know I already cut a few cards. There's a few in the Victor Beach packet already about this. That just suggests that, no surprise, when we give countries money, they're more likely to uh, accede to our demands on various things. I wonder and why. so if you said, yeah, I know, right? Uh, so countries that are on the United States payroll for large amounts of military aid tend to be more willing to comply with the United States you know, votes in the United Nations and the United States general policy towards the region in which they're in. And the impact of this are, are varied, but the basic idea is just we need allies, even if they're not perfect allies, in order to get our goals accomplished. And so one way that was referenced earlier was terrorism, obviously having allies in the war on terror is important for like getting information, for actually conducting fighting and so forth. It can also be utilized in other ways. So for example, a, a big common example was the topic of Saudi Arabia. One reason we aid uh, Saudi Arabia so much is not necessarily because we like them, but because they're a crucial regional partner in a lot of uh, ways. They counterbalance Iran, which is a country that we historically have been trying to, you know, contain with like the nuclear crisis in the early 2000s and so forth. And having a, another strong power in the region who supports us can be helpful for that. They're also helpful pragmatically for things like keeping the oil uh, flowing because they control a lot of that. And so it's in our interest to be friends with, if only for purely instrumental reasons, the country that controls a large portion of the world's oil. And you can think about these sort of scenarios and they're, they're multiple, there's obviously a ton of them. But the point is, just in general, the U.S. does benefit a lot from having countries on its side and pursuing all sorts of world issues. And so in very indirect and hard to quantify ways, military aid can help us promote peace and stability and whatever values we support. 
because it makes other countries more willing to get on board with those uh, and help us do that and not actively uh, violate them. All right, makes sense to me. Um, again, shouldn't be that difficult to find evidence for. So, you know, this is, a, this is after all, like the State Department is it puts out like reports that are like, this is why we give aid. And all of them are, you know, obviously a little bit biased and uh, very self-serving, but uh, all of them have pretty good rhetoric explaining why we give aid uh, for the purposes of the United States. Like they have to justify themselves to the United States citizens and they tend to be pretty good at it. Um, the fourth and final negative argument is one that we've included because I think it more or less is like talking about a lot of the same issues that the previous three negative arguments are about uh, because it is about the sort of goodness of aid that it is capable of promoting stability, stopping fill in, making, you know, or, or promoting the interests of the United States. Uh, but it is instead an argument that is basically countering the affirmative's relatively strong stance that they're taking, which is that we they have to eliminate all aid, right? Um, and again, as we mentioned in the interpretational section of this episode, the negative is not forced to say that we must provide aid, um, nor are they you know, forced to say anything other than that we can provide aid. And one thing that we can use aid to do is to you know, alter the behavior of authoritarian regimes. And that's uh, what sometimes we do attempt to do, which is to condition aid on the you know, completion of various objectives that the United States deems good. Um, and so this is the conditional aid argument. Um, and the general idea is that aid, military aid to authoritarian regimes can be given if they meet certain objectives that we want. Now, we've done this before um, with other nations. Um, one example is Egypt that comes to mind where we attempted to get them to accede to some of our demands by like becoming a little bit more politically liberal, um, stopping like the jailing of journalists and stuff. Not sure that it really worked, but whatever. And the negative can say, instead of ending all aid, we should just condition that aid uh, on the acceptance of uh, certain terms and conditions that the that authoritarian regimes might agree to. Um, it seems to me like a pretty strategic argument. <clears throat> and there are several think tanks that have published papers about how they think the United States should condition its military aid. Um, and it seems like pretty strong because it's capable of accessing, you know, a lot of the good things that the affirmative is talking about. If there, for example, affirmative case is about how ending aid leverages countries into being better respecters of human rights, well, you would say conditions that aid upon whether or not they better respect human rights. Um, I feel like there are two, maybe three issues that negative debaters might encounter when thinking about this argument. Um, and, and so I'm just gonna ask you about these. Number one, is this a counter plan? And are those allowed in Lincoln Douglas debate? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, just, I think you can find evidence that to some degree we already do use aid in some ways to pressure countries. Obviously like in, in the current political climate, you've seen discussion about Saudi Arabia and how there's already been calls for Congress to cut aid uh, to Saudi Arabia. And so even just the mere possibility of that happening, right? We don't even necessarily need to make it explicit and say, hey, Saudi Arabia, here's a formal contract. We provide this aid if and only if you do that. Um, for other countries to know, well, hey, we're getting aid because we're on this country's good side. Let's not rock the boat too much because maybe they'll renege on their agreements. And so the Ned could argue that even if we don't formally call the aid conditional aid and tell the country up front, here's the exact conditions to meet, that, that sort of implicit threat of removing the aid will always exist and always pressure them to sort of comply with the United States interest. And so I think you could argue that it might already to some degree be embedded in the status quo function of aid. But you could also argue that it's something we should do more proactively or be more proactive about, in which case 
uh, I would say, you know, the negative, you're not trying to get too into the jargon and call it a counter plan and you have a specific advocacy. You might just want to harken back to the discussion we were having earlier about the tool in the toolbox that I've already met and just say, oh, well, look, just because there's one form of aid that we're doing that's bad doesn't suggest that there aren't other productive ways to use aid that are good. And insofar as the app is the one categorically prohibiting aid, the onus on the neg is just to point out a good way to use aid, not that aid is in general or always good, and that the possibility of using it in this productive way applies. So I think it might be a good way to catch that in less jargon-heavy terms. Yeah, um, I, I agree with that, although I actually not really considered that perspective until you mentioned it. Um, I'll just toss in the, the additional thought, which is like, in most traditional circuits, uh, counterplans are prohibited either explicitly via the rules or implicitly because all of the judges hate it and think that it's too reminiscent of policy debate and so will um, violently uh, exclude it from their consideration and their <laughs> in their decision calculus by lowering your speaks a lot and then voting against you. Uh, but it's possible to deploy this argument even very similar to the style of a counterplan by merely making it a negative contention and simply arguing that we ought not, you know, and the aid uh, to authoritarian regimes and said should condition it you know, for some reasons. And the less you can make it sound like a policy style argument um, to which I'm sure many of you dislike, uh, the better this is gonna be as an argument for you in, in more local and traditional circuits. Uh, and the second, I guess, question I have about this counterplan is, is there, have you stumbled across any literature that indicates that these conditions are effective? Uh, there seems to be, you know, obviously some mixture, but there's definitely good affirmative literature these conditions might just ultimately fail. Uh, in fact, there was an entire past LD topic on this. Did you perhaps debate this, Lawrence? It was 2013-2014, the March April topic of that year. Um, it was uh, political conditions. It, yeah, it was like political conditions to foreign aid is unjust or something like that. I don't remember. Uh, it was March April, yeah. and I, I remember that I did not take that topic very seriously because it was my senior year, mm -hmm. um, and I, I was probably going to be successful anyways. And I was already auto qual to nationals. And that's the topic that qualify is the district tournament. So I didn't really prep for it. I'm pretty sure I just went for Hobbs on the neg in every round. So yeah. So that topic was slightly different because it was about humanitarian aid rather than military aid. But the point being is there is a robust literature surrounding conditions on foreign aid that you can look to to find evidence for or against this. I've already seen some of this. Uh, and specifically, I saw a delineation that might be of relevance here, which is, uh, this is in the context of Saudi Arabia, but there were some people who argued that we should use this aid in a very absolutist sense to get Saudi Arabia to make you know, somewhat radical concessions on you know, ending the war in Yemen and making progress towards democracy, making its government more inclusive and so forth, and only if it does that will it get the United States continued aid. And arguing that we, we have a pretty significant carrot and stick and we can get big concessions from Saudi Arabia. Uh, and the other version of the argument was that we don't necessarily have that much influence, but we can use aid to get more modest confessions. I saw someone arguing that if we tried to get Saudi Arabia to do these sort of radical things, like end its uh, conflict with Yemen, move towards democracy, et cetera, it would just say no, tell us to take the highway, and perhaps turn to other countries, or just go it solo uh, in what it's doing. But that we do at least have enough leverage to get more moderate demands, e.g., we could have more influence on Saudi Arabia's method of prosecuting the conflict in Yemen if we wanted to, so that we could perhaps constrain it to killing few innocent civilians and focusing more on direct combatants and applying the laws of war more strictly, things like that. And so that more modest demand, I think, might be strategic in that, although it doesn't get you as much, obviously it wouldn't be able to claim that you've completely ended, say, the war in Yemen in the Saudi context or completely caused a democratization. You could argue that 
A, it's more likely to be effective because the demands are more restrained, and B, you could combine it with more effectively these sorts of fill-in type arguments because you could say the modest demand is more likely to circumvent the fill-in, whereas the app's categorical removal is more likely to cause that impact. And so it might be helpful to distinguish conditional on full democratization versus conditional on some more limited constraint. That makes sense to me. Uh, I mean, I think the conditional aid counterplan is a good negative argument and a very strong, just like general check against most affirmatives. Um, I, I think as long as negatives know how to apply it based on the specific affirmative that's read in round, they'll be fine. Okay, any other thoughts about being neg on this topic? Um, make sure you have ethos. Obviously, the app has a natural ethos advantage, so you want to make sure you can counter that because you know the, the two error that's likely coming is just like, isn't authoritarianism terrible? Why would they support this? And you want to make very clear to the judge that it's not as black and white as that. And so don't let yourself get behind the ball on the framing of the debate because that's the place the app normally naturally wants to be on topics like this. Yeah, I, I can for sure say that if I was affirming on this topic, half of my two ARs would just be like special pleading with the judge. Like, please don't support these authoritarian regimes. They're so bad. And truthfully, they are. Like, I'm pretty sure this is a pretty F-biased topic. But, uh, you know, the NEG cannot let the affirmative get that advantage. And they should insist that the judge evaluate the pragmatic uh, use of military aid rather than the sort of moralistic musings of a high school debater uh, in these debate rounds. OK, uh, so. When we come back, we'll just do a quick conclusion. So that's the end of this podcast. Uh, thank you very much to Jacob Nails for giving up some unknown period of his day to doing this. I know that I barely wanted to, and so I'm impressed that he he did. Um, weirdly enough, I just kind of like asked him while I was at the doctor's office, and he was like, I can do this podcast in 15 minutes. And I was like, okay, well, I better make this, I better get home really quick. Um, and so he came home and recorded. So thanks to coming on on such short notice. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'll see you in like, two weeks at the Emory tournament. Maybe we'll record another live one there and maybe my voice will sound less dead from the illness that I yep. had. Just over two weeks from now. Which is, wow, this year is moving fast. Uh, it seems like just yesterday I was sleeping through the ball dropping on midnight at New Year's Eve. Um, okay, thanks to Victory Bruce for sponsoring this podcast by providing the mic and the hosting support. Uh, its camp dates and locations have been announced and the briefs uh, for this uh, topic uh, can be found at victorybriefs.com at the store section. Um, and it will actually prove to be a pretty valuable resource uh, given the amount of evidence and arguments that we've referenced from the brief packet. And so I, if you haven't picked one up, I'd consider it. Um, and finally, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes and SoundCloud uh, and share this with all of the friends that you have in debate. I imagine that number you know, may not be huge because the amount of people that do debate isn't very large. But for all those that you know, we can reach, We'd really appreciate it. You know, we do this podcast basically out of the goodness of our hearts with like no pay. Uh, and so at the very least, you know, maybe some person can listen to it and gain something useful. All right, on to what Martin terms the only important part of the podcast and what I term to be the bane of my existence, the mini debate. Uh, I was going to originally debate Jacob over whether or not we should have the mini debate at all and whether or not it should be abolished. But I figured Martin was not here to defend himself and so it'd be a little bit unfair. Um, so instead, we've decided to go with a topic that Jacob has selected, uh, and we'll debate that really quickly and sign off. Uh, so this topic is basically who is the better villain, either the Joker from uh, Batman the Dark Knight 
um, or Thanos from the Avengers, uh, you know, Infinity War, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, although really there's just one movie that matters, Infinity War. So I'll let Jacob start off here. I'm yeah. interested in hearing this case. Yeah, so I think, I mean, not to knock the, not to knock the Dark Knight, that's an excellent movie overall, but I think, I mean, the Joker specifically is ultimately a relatively empty stand-in for, for villainy. His backstory is never fully developed, and like, he, he tells his backstory a number of times in a way that are obviously unreliable and false, and you never really learn the truth. And this sort of, I don't know, kind of abstract and not very fleshed out motive of just, like, chaos for chaos' sake is really just sort of an empty vessel that the writers are able to use to just, like, make him do whatever to cross various plot conflicts. And obviously, like, that's kind of helpful for other aspects, like characterizing Batman or creating conflict, but it doesn't make the Joker an excellent character in his own right. Whereas Thanos, I think, has the hallmark of what I think is a very good villain, which is a villain who is plausible and that you could imagine their motivations. Like you could, you could see someone thinking that and acting that way. He has clear and consistent rationale. You know, he's obviously very concerned about overpopulation and his actions are consistently driven towards that. He's not painted as just this sort of like radical, unrelatable evil, whereas the Joker just like causes chaos for chaos's sake. Uh, he, you know, is shown at number, you know, numerous times to have respect for his opponents, you know, love for Gamora and other things that make him a, you know, a plausibly, you know, yeah, not literally human, but humanizable character. And it, it shows the possibility of uh, sort of a deeper character development than just like good versus evil that allows for that you know, broader complexity. I think that's very important in a story. And the Joker, I think, lacks that, which I think is a very significant uh, slight to his character. Okay, so that seems like a very reasonable case. Um, I, I'm functionally understanding your argument to be that, that, that sort of uh, Thanos is more of a character that you you can see a rhyme and a reason to their madness and that makes them more you can better identify with them whereas the joker functions more of an empty vessel to like create something a little bit more otherworldly is is that a reasonable summation of some of the basic points that you've made yeah pretty much yeah and so for me i i think it's going to be difficult to effectively clash in this debate because the sort of first intuition that you have as to whether or not you would prefer a villain that is easier to understand their motivations and at least a more rational sense and easier to identify with and ones one that you can you know see the pain because you know th there's moments in the movie where thanos is you know sad about gamora and like see the humanity and and see the will and the determination necessary to build up towards his you know um his goal of exterminating half of the population on the planet um which you know some consider rational i mostly consider just to be like an uh a sort of expression of his like desire to demonstrate his power over others that is disguised as empathy. Uh, but, and whereas if you prefer the Joker, I think you're much more interested in, uh, you know, something that is very difficult to identify with, but I think purposefully because uh, the Joker represents, you know, someone without a plan, someone without a rhyme or reason, someone without the madness. And so someone that, is very difficult to identify with because it doesn't accurately map onto any reasonable understanding that any human would have of of a villain. It is actually just really a comic book character because no one could reasonably uh, find any character in the universe that exists in the real and map that onto the Joker with you know any strong degree of correlation. I'm pretty sure you could try to find even the worst of criminals in, in history and you would get none quite as... Uh, 
curious and as weird and as devastating and as mad as the Joker. And so I think once your like intuition sort of bottom out at like, which one do I prefer? It, it becomes very difficult to establish like a strong reason to prefer one over the other. I think it's more or less a reason to prefer, uh, more or less just like your gut gut feeling. Um, I'll, I'll attempt to give a brief uh, rational reason for why I think the Joker is better. Um, the first is because he is so empty and because he is more or less the vessel that the writers can just use to, you know, carry through the story. I think that makes him very unique. Whereas most villains, you know, they try so hard to establish a backstory that ends up being like not very compelling. Although Thanos is the exception and they try so hard to like, you know, create a human story. I think the Joker is interesting because it, it, it says no to all of that because it is just, uh, it is just like a representation of all the madness in the world combined into a human form. Uh, one that's very difficult to, I think, find in any other art form or any other media. And I think that's, is, is pretty unique. Um, I also think that, you know, the fact that he's so unpredictable and that his character can be so many different things, um, you know, evidenced by the different portrayals like Heath Ledger, uh, you know, is acting in, in the awesome movie versus like, you know, uh, uh, Mark Hamill's like voicing of the, of the Joker. Like the fact that it can be just so many different crazy people and they can all embody in such a unique way, I think is, is pretty interesting. Whereas I think uh, it'd be very difficult for anyone other than Josh Brolin to portray the madness that is uh, Thanos. And, you know, finally, the, the laugh is pretty cool. Can't deny that. Thanks for the laugh. I guess my final word on the matter. Uh, just two brief points. First, I disagree with the uniqueness of the Joker. I think uh, a great example of where that sort of character archetype is exceedingly common is just like any sort of you know young children, even to like early adolescent fiction, like you know kids shows. The the Joker is the prototypical villain. It's someone who's unrealistically evil, like Hades from Hercules or whatever. They're just like overly simplistic good versus evil paradigm. So I, don't, I, I would disagree that the Joker is the exception to the rule there. I think it just shows that he is drawing from the, the more simplistic base rather than what I think uh, takes the movie above and beyond, which is being able to move beyond that and still have a villain that is simultaneously evil but also understandable. And then the second point I would uh, want to make has eluded me, so I think I'll leave it at that. Oh, no, I remember the second point. Okay. Uh, the second point is, I think it, it is okay to have a character say that uh, maybe the chaos for chaos's sake that allows you to do a lot with them. But I think it's important to have a justification for that. One important aspect of fiction when you're you know constructing a good fictional world is whenever it deviates from the real world, you have some sort of explanation for why it's okay for the, the audience to suspend disbelief. You know, like, well, Spider-Man is superhuman because backstory, he has like a spider bite and that gives him different powers or, you know, Doctor Strange's origin story, things like that, that allow the audience to understand why they have this unique characteristic. And so, you know, for example, like a comic book Joker, he has a backstory, I think a number of them, in fact, uh, that give justification for him behaving in the idiosyncratic way that he does. And so that's conceivably okay, as long as you justify that. It, it's less justified and to me a little bit more frustrating when you just have to like, assume eh, there must be some reason for that. They don't tell me why. And the reason he's behaving in this unnatural way that I couldn't explain to you is left unclear. If you want to have that sort of uh, deviation from reality, it's fine as just long as you explain it and so that the audience knows why that is the case. And I'll leave it at that. Reasonable. I, I'm actually surprised. Like, I feel like we could actually debate this for a while. Um, but I will I will so, let you have, have the last word there because yeah. it, it's, it's interesting. Everybody submit this as a topic for the next topic slice. This can be a real LD topic. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it might be. I don't it was, do that. I don't want to do this. <laughs> well, it'd be certainly a lot better than the November, December topic. Um, that That's fair. Actually terrible. All right. Well, once again, thank you so much for coming on. And I will see you in person in like two or so weeks. So. Yep. All right, peace.
this isn't an argument. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's just contradiction. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It is not. It's... 